In the book of Judges, chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ahud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Javan king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Hagoyim, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead to Sarah, the commander of Javan's army, with his chariots and his troops, to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. From Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus told his disciples this parable. A man going on a journey called in his servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to a third one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Immediately the one who received five talents went and traded with them and made another five. Likewise, the one who received two made another two. But the man who received one went off and dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came back and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five talents came forward, bringing the additional five. He said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I have made five more. His master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you were faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come share my master's joy. Then the one who had received two talents also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I have made two more. His master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you were faithful in small matters, 
I will give you great responsibilities. Come, share your master's joy. Then the one who had received the one talent came forward and said, Master, I knew you were a demanding person, harvesting where you did not plant and gathering where you did not scatter. So out of fear, I went off and buried your talent in the ground. Here it is back. His master said to him in reply, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I would harvest where I did not plant and gather where I did not scatter. Should you not then have put my money in the bank so that I could have it back with interest on my return? Now then, take the talent from him and give it to the one with 10. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will grow rich. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And throw this useless servant into the darkness outside where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We to gather together um, to be the people of God, to live in community with one another. Um, the Apostle Paul says in the letter that we read earlier, he's talking about these really big picture things like, okay, the day of the Lord is coming and there's this light and you're to be daytime people and all this kind of stuff. It's really big picture stuff. And then he says, so keep encouraging one another. <laughs> keep gathering together. And I just, I love that connection between those two because when we think about the big picture stuff, we tend to think, oh my gosh, like I need to be like holy and, you know, get everything ready. And there's these existential moments. And then Paul's encouragement is, hey, um, support each other. <laughs> and I, I, anyway, I just love that. That's a side thing. But uh, today I want to talk about our gospel reading particularly, but I'll start with this. I will never forget one day in college when I showed up at a class that I just loved. I particularly loved this class. And somehow I had completely forgotten that our final exam was on that day. Um, this was one of those classes that didn't require a whole lot of like deep thinking. It uh, didn't require a lot of intense thinking. There weren't any problems to solve or figure out. There weren't any essays that I needed to write on the test. All the class required was that you study, that you know the names and dates and vocabulary. You know these kind of classes, right? Retention of the material in the textbook. That's all supposed to do. That's all I need to do. That was the name of the game. But if you were like me on that particular day and you had not used the study guide <laughs> or poured over the chapter, you were going to fail. You couldn't fake it through it. You couldn't rely on other skills. You had to know the stuff. And I had done really well in that class up until that point. And at that moment, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. This failure if I took this test, could have a way of legitimately changing my life. So what I decided was the best course of action was to go to the teacher there in the class, admit my mistake, and plead for mercy. Please help. I totally blew it. I forgot about the test. Is there anything I can do? My suggestion, like the prodigal son who comes to the father and says, can I be a servant in your household? I said, could I take it later and lose a letter grade? <laughs> I know I could do well on this, but I just forgot. And the teacher in that moment looked at me with an expression that conveyed both, oh no, and let's make this work. She told me I could come to her office the next day and take the test. Now this, I think, is the only professor I ever had who would have done such a thing. <laughs> I still remember that oh crap moment right there where I saw people preparing for a test 
And I wasn't ready, and I hated that feeling. Now, I think some people think that Christianity is really about preparing for an oh-crap moment. We think we better get things right. We better be ready for the test, or we're going to fail, and our lives will be ruined forever. If that's what people think Christianity is, no wonder they want nothing to do with it. Sometimes we read stories like our gospel reading and then the story last week of the bridesmaids and the lamps, and we have this kind of idea in mind. I've got to get myself morally right. I better be prepared. I better white-knuckle my way through morality or I'm toast. The problem with the test way of thinking is it doesn't look anything like the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus said he didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. He said he came to seek and save that which was lost. Think about the people who Jesus seemed to say would inherit the kingdom. The tax collectors and the prostitutes would have failed any moral and religious examination. But Jesus also told the religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees, that those who were seen as least would actually go before them in God's kingdom. So in reality, this story is about God's goodness and generosity. This cluster of parables that we have together is telling us something about the relationship between God and his people. Jesus has called the religious leaders out in chapter 23. He's addressed them. He has uh, called them out. Why? Because they had forgotten the generosity and goodness of God. They had created a system which excluded others on moral, ethnic, and even sometimes physical grounds. Jesus' parable here is about a man who's going on a journey, and he entrusts his wealth to his servants while he's away. The servants are given these talents. Okay, now this is where it gets real confusing, okay? A talent was just a unit of money in the ancient world. It was what a laborer could earn in 15 years. That's a talent, okay? Scholars estimate today that the total amount the master distributed to his servants was about close to $1.9 million today. So this is a lot, a lot of wealth, a lot of money. Now, the word that we use for talent in English is for gifts or skills. It can be a talented piano player or <laughs> talented at you know, different kinds of things. That's derived from this Greek word. It's taken from the parable, but it gets real confusing because then we read this and we go, it's about my skills and my abilities. No, actually, that's not what this is about. The English language took the word from the parable, not the other way around. It's referring to money, lots and lots of money, all right? So what does the talent represent in this story? What does the money represent here? What was it they were given? What gift is it that was so valuable? Well, it may represent everything which God's people have been entrusted with. God's people, Israel, were given the law of Moses. They were given the temple, the sign of God's presence. They had been given promises about how God wanted to bless them and then bless the world through them. They are God's chosen people. This is a gift. It's an amazing gift. God wants them to steward this gift and to put it to work in blessing the world. Now, Jesus is always, throughout his ministry, challenging different political groups of the day. So I won't go into detail here, but in the first century, just like there is today, there were all kinds of different political ideologies that were kind of fighting together or trying to figure out a way to be the people of God together. And here, Jesus may be challenging those ideologies who had been stingy with God's blessing, 
keeping others away. There's this group called the Qumran community or the Essenes, that's what we call them today. And it was this group of people who went into isolation. So they thought the people of God are too far gone. Society is just too bad that we're gonna go live in the desert and start our own new utopian community. And they literally dug in the ground and buried themselves in the sense that they had underground gatherings away from the world. They built caves and they hid from the world. So that's the Essenes. Then there's a group called the Pharisees, which is probably the group Jesus is calling out most pointedly here, indicating they're the third servant in this story. Now, we have to be careful because there's a tendency in Christianity to be really critical of the Pharisees altogether. But we have to remember that it's likely the Pharisees were the ones with whom Jesus had the most in common. That may be why he was the harshest towards them. We're led in in the gospel stories on all these family squabbles among God's people. And the purpose is for Jesus is trying to get the people to see what God is doing in him as the fulfillment of the story. So the critique here of the religious leaders is there's a tendency to take what God has given, take the blessings and just protect it to keep everyone else away from it. You may remember the old song that comes from the Beatitudes, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I won't make us all sing it together. But, but do you remember that? You remember the song? Yes? Okay. Then there's the verse that we loved as kids, hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine, right? Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Jesus is saying some of the religious leaders have taken their light they've been given and they've hid it under a bushel. They've taken the law, the temple, the promises that were designed to bless the whole world and they've hidden it. And they're worshiping in such a way that excludes the other. And it doesn't take any risks to go after the other with God's love. And therefore, it doesn't benefit the world. In the ancient world, the safest thing to do with money was not to put it in a bank. It was just to bury it. But the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is not safe. It's an adventure. It's active and moving and working in the world. You can't be salt and light in the world if you're not in the world. Salt and light seeks the good of the world. Jesus is saying the religious leaders have so blinded themselves, they were unable to see the gift that was Jesus himself. So these religious leaders are seen as the third servant in the story, the one who hid the talent, who hid the wealth. But what about the other two servants in the story? Who are they? Well, they are, it seems, the ones who hear the call of Jesus and respond. They're like, in another of Jesus' parables, the mustard seed, which starts small and blossoms. They know they can't hold on to anything else. They don't have anything to grasp onto. They can't hold on to their own achievements. They can't hold on to their own efforts or approval of others. They can't grasp onto anything. They hold on to the kingdom of God. And when they do that, the mustard seed blossoms and grows. This can be seen in the larger context of this God who we serve, who always responds to us with grace and love. When we receive that grace and love and we allow it to work in our hearts, it changes us and it bears fruit in the world. Now notice, it's interesting, the, total, the focus here of the parable is not on the total amount earned. Jesus does not praise someone who earned more than someone who earned less, 
okay? We can get real capitalistic when we read some of these things in America today, right? That's not what Jesus means. Notice, there's no one who tried to invest it and then lost it. You notice that in the story? The general idea is if you put the talent to work, it will produce. So God is not saying, hey, you did better than so-and-so. Your business skills are a lot better than the other one. No, he doesn't do any of that. He just says, I've given you something, put it to work. Go after it. And the assumption is when you live in the way of the kingdom, it will always bear fruit. It will always, you won't lose it. The parable begins with grace. God has given us an incredible gift. Many of throughout church history on the other side of Christ's death and resurrection have seen a different wrinkle in this story. Jesus is in this story. He is the talent that's given for the world. And... He is the servant who faithfully multiplied and expanded this gift in the world. Because of Jesus, we've been blessed to be part of the family of God. It wasn't something we earned. And now, as a grace-giving, generous people, we are called to participate in Christ's mission of blessing the world. Now, notice the motivation of the servants, why they do what we do, what they do comes from how they view the master, what they think of the master. So the wicked servant, notice what he says. He says to the master, he was afraid of him, so he hid the talent. He was afraid of what might happen if he put the talent to work. He was afraid that the talent would be squandered, so he just hid it. This reveals a faulty conception of God. Some believed that God was mean and wrathful and stingy. So what would you do if you believed that God, your master, is stingy? Do everything you could to protect what you have been given. Everything becomes about preservation. But that misses the whole point of God's activity in the world. Loving and blessing. To miss this is to miss Jesus. We too can bury what God has given us. We can think that God's blessings are scarce, so we hold tightly instead of being open-handed and generous with others. But God's presence is always active, not static. God is moving, healing, and restoring the world, and when we try to hide it, to isolate it, it does no one any good. The other servants, which probably refers to the tax collectors and sinners, had a sense that their master was loving, And he wanted what was best for them and the world. So notice in verse 16, it says, when they received the talent, they went at once and put it to work. When Lucy, my 10-year-old daughter, gets a new toy, she can't even wait to leave the store before she wants to start opening it. Now, heck, when I get a new piece of technology (laughs) or a new book, I want to open it immediately. Let's get on with this. I can't wait another second. That's what happens when we receive a gift from God with grace. In our epistle reading, Paul uses a different image that conveys something similar. This is another one of those readings that people think are pass or fail, are about the test or the moralizing idea. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Some of you, maybe of a certain generation, that phrase may stick in your head in a certain way. Um, Paul is talking about living as a day people, even though others think it's still night. 
in a sense, what he says is the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming, but you are the day of the Lord. So the light is coming. It's going to dawn, but you're the people of light. You live that now in how you live. So think about like how jet lag affects you if you ever travel internationally. So maybe you arrived home late at night, but because of where you came from, you still think it's daytime. You're a daytime person in the middle of the night. You been there? Christians are in the middle of the world's night, but we're a people led by the Spirit to live into the daytime. Paul says we can get numbed by this phrase, peace and security. And this phrase, peace and security, was a propaganda statement of the Roman Empire in the first century. This is what emperors promised, peace and security. So everywhere they'd go, Caesar Augustus has given us peace and security. And then um, Caligula, he is the one who promises peace and security. Paul says that those who live by the security of the empire will be shaken awake when God comes in judgment. And he was right. Jerusalem in 70 AD would be overrun and the temple would be destroyed by Titus. Then Paul says this phrase, but you brothers and sisters. So what he says here is there's those in the world who are lulled to sleep by the peace and security of the empire, but you're different. Christians are different. Those who trust in the empire live in the dark, but the children of God won't be surprised at the day of the Lord. Why? Because the light has actually already dawned in Christ and you're already children of light. We are already new creatures. Still, we wait. So he says, remember who you are. Remember you're the people of light. Live as the children of light that you already are. And then he says, being daytime people means wearing appropriate clothing. Don't wear your pajamas in the daytime, right? Because of what the, well, some, some of us do, that's fine. There's no judgment here, okay? But because of what the world is about to face, Paul tells the church, put on your armor. Now we're in Ephesians 6, he talks about the full armor of God. You may be familiar with that. But here he mentions only the defensive pieces, the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope and salvation. A little rabbit trail here. I won't go too far, I promise. But Paul's actually being really subversive when he uses armor language. Because what he's saying is like the way of the world is to use real armor and to fight. And he's saying, yeah, our armor doesn't even look like that. You know what our armor is? Love (laughs) and grace. So it's a really subversive thing. Okay, rabbit trail over. Um, But the defensive pieces here, the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet is the hope of salvation. Faith and love ward off frontal attacks. The hope of salvation is what guards our minds in Christ. So Paul is talking about judgment and Jesus is talking about judgment. And that's a really hard thing to talk about today. We don't really like talking about judgment. But judgment, what we mean is judgment is bad news and it's good news at the same time. Here's what, we, what I mean by that. Think about the word justice. We all really want justice. We talk about that all the time. We know we need justice. But judgment and justice both have this sense of putting things right. Sometimes we hear judgment and we think condemnation or we think everything is just, you know, judgment is just you're in trouble, right? But no, judgment and justice are this idea of things being revealed so they can be put right. The question is who's doing the pudding? (laughs) I wanted to title this sermon, The Proof is in the Pudding, but I'm not going to do that. You're welcome. So the question is, can we trust God's judgment? 
that when he puts things right, that he is always loving and always good. If God is good, his judgment can be trusted. In fact, if God is good, it's imperative we lean into his judgment for our own restoration. So the church longs for God's judgment because we look at the world and we know the world is not as it should be. Would you agree with that? We don't just need a little fix here and there, a little tweak, a little turning of this knob and turning of this fader. No, we need a kind of overhaul that only God can bring. In Christ is a security on which the empires of the world could never deliver. So the the calling here is to hold fast to faith and you will find the hope and strength that you need. So like I said before, Paul's command at the end of the reading is for the church to encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. The calling to stay awake is not just morally get everything right as an individual. It's about mutual encouragement and support. When one of your family members in in the church family is going through something and you stand with them and you lock arms with them, you're actually being a person of light. You're wearing your armor, right? We are to be the people of God together to be there for each other, to bring each other hope in the midst of despair. And then the end of this parable of the talents can be kind of scary. If you actually read the whole thing or you listened to the whole thing today, you you might be going, okay, all that is well and good and everything you said before. I can understand that those who are only concerned with themselves, they should, uh, shouldn't be entrusted with anything. I get that. We may even understand how the talent could be taken from one person and given to something else. But why does it have to end this way? It says, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is up with that? Well, we have to remember first that this is a figurative story. This is a parable. Jesus is giving a harsh warning to oppressive political groups who have warped God's embracing heart for the world. But second, we have to remember Outer darkness is actually a fitting description of where self-obsession leads. If you meet someone in your life, and we have all known folks that struggle with this, but someone who's just fully self-obsessed, they live their lives in great insecurity, rejecting others for not being good enough, all the while concerned that they are not good enough. This kind of life can only lead to weeping, to lashing out, the light that they're called to shine actually extinguishes. It is because God desires for all of us to join in his kingdom, Jesus tells this story because we live in a self-obsessed world. But yet, remember one more thing about this. Remember where all this entire story is headed. Jesus is the one who will be cast into outer darkness. He himself will take on the wailing and gnashing of teeth the self-obsession of the world, the lack of the mercy of the world, that we might be freed from our own self-obsession. He takes our place. This is because God loves us and only wants our good. So the good news is we don't have to be afraid. We can trust and yield our lives to God and to his kingdom. God calls us to utter dependence on his grace, an open-handed and active life which follows the Spirit in radical giving and loving. So 
So I'll end here. When you think about God, what comes to your mind? If God is stingy, we're driven by fear towards getting mine. Life becomes all about earning, personal security, wealth accumulation. But if God is generous, if we really believe that, our lives gradually, our hands begin to open. We become overflowing and bearing fruit in the world. You can see why it is so important that the church proclaim the message of the God who is generous and gives himself. At sacrament, that's what I hope for you to hear every week. And perhaps even more importantly, that's what I hope our kids and grandkids will hear. That's what I hope that as we become the church that is not just here for a few years together, but a church that is generational, that that we begin to be a people who know that God is always after our good, who's always loving and always generous, and that it changes us. Another important thing to consider is the difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction comes out of love. Conviction is when your two-year-old hears your voice of warning when they're headed towards the stove. And you go, no, 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 don't do that. You love them and you just don't want them to get burned. Condemnation is rooted in fear. When your two-year-old believes that their parents don't like them because they're moving towards the stove. Do you see the difference? Grace declares you are invited into this beautiful life of self-giving because God gave himself for you. We can step out. We can put the kingdom to work because God is good. God is generous. And when we live this way, we may be surprised at what happens. It's quite difficult at first. When we really believe that God is generous and we take risks and we step out and we seek the good in the world, it can often mean some awkward moments. (laughs) can mean making sacrifices of our time, resources. It sometimes means being around people we would not ordinarily choose to be around. Yet there's also incredible joy. When we give of ourselves, more is given to us, just like in the parable. And when more is given to us, we don't then hoard that, we give that. And we continue to see this beautiful thing that happens in the world by the Holy Spirit when we give out of God's grace. So may we know and rest in the generous love of God in Jesus Christ. And may we live into the rhythms of grace that we might invest it, multiply it, and watch it bear fruit. Amen.